It's episode 85 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program are Andy Welfley and Michael Metz, co-authors of the book, Designing is Writing. We're going to discuss how words are the core of good design and what you can do to improve the quality of your communication in your work. Guys, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, that's great. All right, let me get the name straight here. Andy, let me hear your voice. Uh, this is Andy, and here is my voice. All right, great. We'll, we'll keep that association. And, <laughs> and Michael? <laughs> Hi, I'm Michael, and I also have a voice. All right, fantastic. <laughs> you do have a voice. I am so glad uh, that we are talking about this topic today, uh, because frankly, I feel so strongly about it. I uh, studied journalism back in my college days and worked as a writer and editor mm. for a number of years, uh, and this is... Uh, uh, scarily before the web. Uh, and so I, I kind of come from a place where words on the page are the product. Uh, and that uh, everything from, uh, you know, the design of those pages to the business models to to kind of everything was sourced from this kind of uh, language-first perspective. Um, and that training all those years ago was just, the, you know, the clear and concise communication has been so enormously helpful in my career as a designer and, and even as, a, as an investor now uh, that I'm thrilled to talk about this with you guys for a while. So, uh, so let's get into it. Andy, let me start with you. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit about your background, like how you came to writing this book and how you, how you guys got together and all of that. And then, Michael, we'll go with you after that. Like you, I went to school for journalism. Um, and also, I'll let Michael speak for himself, but uh, I think you know, he has a very similar background. And um, I, like, all I wanted to do for, um, for most of my high school and college career was to be a journalist and work maybe in like, you know, in, like an, you know, um, an arts desk um, feature stuff. And I loved it. Um, always have also loved just sort of, you know, graphic design as, you know, kind of as an admirer, but not as a practitioner. Um, mm -hmm. I worked at a student newspaper through college, um, gave me some of the best experience I think I've ever had. Um, and then I graduated and it was very clear that, um, you know, journalism was not a lucrative career to get into at that point, which was around 2006. Oh, um, right. So, so went into the uh, nonprofit kind of like marketing space, um, which kind of led to social media marketing and strategy, which led to communication strategy, which led to UX strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually that led into, um, I got a job, um, moved from Indiana to the Bay Area and worked at Facebook on their content strategy team and learned a lot about UX writing and kind of like, you know, words in words as material for design. Um, and since there, I, I have since moved on, and I'm now the content strategy manager of Adobe Design, which is the big centralized product design team at Adobe. Um, so we have we share some hey, we, we share some Adobe connections with some people. Yeah, Jeff. yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah. So, um, so uh, Michael and I met actually at a workshop that he was giving uh, with a uh, a friend of his and a mutual friend of mine about visual communication uh, for for writers on design teams, and it was. The, literally the, the day before I was supposed to fly out of um, Indiana to interview at Facebook. And I had just a lot on my mind and I just wanted to like talk about it with someone. And Michael was just like super gracious and willing to chat. Um, and we, we later reconnected at Confab, which is the big uh, content strategy conference that um, they hold every year in Minneapolis. Right. And we were both attending. And at one point we reconnected and said, Hey, you know, they're not really like, there's no real good content for people who are writing interface words, like UX writers. Right. Um, so we were like, well, let's 
<laughs> let's let's do something. Let's pitch a talk or pitch a workshop. So we did, and we've done it um, now, boy, like probably close to 10 times at Confab and at other conferences. And we went to Singapore to do it with a design team there. We've, oh, cool. we've been doing it kind of all around the world. And at some point, uh, Rosenfeld was looking for a book on the subject. And we connected with them and we pitched that book and that happened and <laughs> the rest is history. This is <laughs> this is what's what's going on. So um, yeah, Michael, do you have any anything to add that to that in, in addition to kind of introducing yourself? Yeah, I mean, you're telling the story of how the book came to be really well. And, and my background is really similar to Andy's, like he said, um, I originally planned on being in journalism and uh, photojournalism, as a matter of fact. Uh-huh. Um, I, I had an individual individualized major at a small liberal arts college that was focused on visual storytelling. Uh, but it, the, the job market, again, when I graduated, was really, really tight for that type of work. Um, it, I, I could count on uh, two hands the number of uh, positions available in the state of Michigan where I studied um, and they were very competitive. Uh, so someone coming, um, like it, it was just a really tough market to get into. And, um, what I got involved with instead was working on websites. And, and I initially was hired by a nonprofit to be a content creator. They saw my background in journalism and, and knew that I could write and take pictures and, and tell a story and put things together. And as I got into working with this nonprofit, I realized they didn't actually need more content, they needed better content on their website. Uh, They needed content that met the needs of the people who used it. And so I just did a bunch of on-the-job self-education, read books like Content Strategy for the Web by Christina Halverson, um, The Elements of Content Strategy, you know, Don't Make Me Think, all these kind of books that just kind of got me interested in user experience and in in that field. So my next job after that was for a software company called Wolfram, and they make things like uh, one of their famous products is called Mathematica that's been around a long time. They have sure. another thing called Wolfram Alpha. And I was their uh, first UX writer. I established their UX writing practice on, on the team there and really have always approached my UX work through the context of focusing on language. Because to me, it's, it's always been a really critical part of the interface that th- there's been a need for that. Every, on every team I've been on, and I've always been a person with that strength in my background. So I've been in a variety of roles, and I think like they would be considered design roles, but I've always thought of my main contribution has been being focused on language and words and, and how people use them. Yeah. Wow. So we all have journalism in our backgrounds. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little historical context. Uh, when I first worked in the newsroom, uh, people could smoke at their desks. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> Everybody would have an ashtray on their desk. And, uh, and I had this editor who was this woman in her 60s uh, who kept a bottle of bourbon in her drawer like some kind of trope. Uh, but no, she was honestly <laughs> like this. And you could tell how well the day was going by how late or early the bottle came out. Like if it was at 11 <laughs> o'clock in the morning day, like, oh, we are going to have a crappy day today. Like it was – well, it's pretty wild, but um, – uh, yeah. But that was actually my original transition from like writing into 
design was to take on more and more of the layout uh, of the of the uh, paper that I was working at as we transitioned into like Quark Express and stuff like that. And I knew how Max worked. So um, that's almost uh, part of my uh, creation myth, as it were. Uh, but you guys both mentioned this term that I would like you to try to define, which is which is UX writer. And what is a what is that job like? Where does it fit in the process, uh, and how is it different from being either a content strategist or a copywriter? So Andy is a content strategist and a UX writer, <laughs> right? For example, <laughs> like Andy Andy does UX writing as part of his job, where his title is UX content strategy manager. Right. Um, so what I think when I, when I think of UX writing, it's always helpful for me to talk about the activity outside of a job title because people have all kinds of titles. Sure. To me, the act, the activity is treating the words in a digital product as um, something that is to be designed um, that you you would apply a design process to from discovery to testing to prototyping and iteration. All those same techniques apply to the words that are going into the interface. And um, I think the best way to visualize this, we do it in our workshops, and it was inspired by a blog post from a designer named Meg Reyes, who worked at Basecamp a while back. Um, he's now at Sprout Social. And he had this blog post where he, he put some of these really popular websites and products up, uh, including Basecamp, but also things like Craigslist and um, Gmail and a few other really popular ones, and showed screenshots of them with words in them and then without words in them. Hmm. And when you do that, you start to see there's almost no interface left at all when you take the words out of an interface. And yet, so often, design teams and design conversations center around the visual, the look and feel, the different um, tools we might use, like Sketch and Figma, and, and you know the, the, the prototyping activities that go into it. And we don't... Um, what I found is that there can be an, uh, a bit of glossing over the the words or like you know like a product owner is going to put that in or or someone will give that to us later um or like just write whatever works and in my experience with with users and watching them interact with interfaces often the language is one of the most critical pieces to get right and it it, it can make or break the success of a product so to me it's about applying the same techniques you'd apply to something visual to the words that you write that's interesting. In my experience with usability testing, you can always tell when somebody is confused because they read what they see on the screen out loud. Like that's the <laughs> first indication. Of like they're like, "Now wait a minute, it says here," you know. And um, and so I think you're right. Uh, I, I find that really interesting as words as the almost the atomic unit of design, right? Like right down at its core, mm -hmm. it's putting to kind of explicit meaning a lot of what like you know, designers are trying to just kind of like build into the flow. So I think it works seamlessly with, you know, interaction patterns and flows because then somebody, if somebody is searching for signal, you know, they, they have the words there, right? So I, I definitely think they're all part and partial. In my uh, earlier career, we did a lot of wireframing. Uh, the work that we were doing was sort of categorized as information architecture and interaction design, and we didn't do a lot of visual design, at least the, with the with the people that I worked with. And so, and I think a little bit like so many of the front end frameworks are so accessible and easy to use now that people just jump right to visual design to mock things up and right. And 
Um, but we always did this mm-hmm. sort of abstraction, which was this wireframe. And the only things we were focused on were the hierarchy of the page. We were doing all web design at the time, so it was always page-based. It was the hierarchy of the page, the arrangement of the elements, and the language. And we wouldn't yep. worry at all about any of the branding or colors or, uh, or very much, you know, or even some of the layout arrangement and like groupings were important. But it, yeah. for, it forced a conversation about what the thing meant versus what it looked like. And I, and I feel like that uh, we miss that a lot now. Well, and, and one thing that has been really useful for, um, for when I'm trying to convince like a product manager to let us, you know, get words involved earlier on in the conversation is that, you know, uh, there's a, um, designer named Steph Hay, um, who um, still works at Capital One, has moved on, I'm not mm. sure, um, who one yeah, point was quoted as saying... I think she's saying, a VP at Capital One. Okay, yeah, still still, still at Capital One, who says that, you know, words are the uh, lowest cost, lowest risk way to design, right? Like, <laughs> there's great. not a lot of, like, you know, expensive um, screen mocks being created. You know, you're just typing words on a page, and some of these words will eventually get locked into these very systemic, deep terminology words that like really get like flow through the organization and gets really expensive and hard to change. But, you know, when you're, when you're in that wireframe stage, like, you know, if something is a blog or a news page or something is a uh, paintbrush or a pencil tool or, you know, it's, it's very easy to change the words at that stage. So that's why like wireframing with words is like one of the, you know, you know, best things you can do. You, uh, you guys mentioned that, you know, this, this involves putting the words in button labels and menu items and error messages and stuff like that, but also kind of figuring out if text is the right solution. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I think there's so many situations where, um, you know, this, this happens, this happens at Adobe, this happens everywhere where, you know, you have, you have a, a system that's sort of like innately confusing, Um, maybe it's something that's only sort of like, you know, half developed, or maybe it's, you know, just not, um, not super clear about what's going on. And people are like, oh, look, let's, let's write, let's write a a message that says like, like, oh, hey, like, you know, just, just do this and this will work. And, you know, oftentimes I'll come back with like, well, you know, this is, this is a a word mandate to a problem with the system overall. Um, I don't think that that's going to actually, you know, kind of help people kind of understand the mental model of what they're experiencing or what they're seeing. Um, and, and kind of as, you know, another, another example of that is just like, we need a word that means, you know, this thing and this thing and this thing, like, like, like these four things, like, can you, can we find a word that means that? <laughs> and I hear that a lot. And I, I just usually say like, there, there's literally not a word in the English language that can give this meaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's other ways to help this, but for sure. Yeah. That's, that's a big common problem. Sometimes it's about the the way a product works or the policy that is in place and not so much about the language that you're using. And so that's why we really want to frame it as a design activity because writers, in some cases, their best work should be around asking questions and <clears throat> trying to visualize different ways to do something or explore different options. <clears throat> Whereas usually I think they feel like their contribution is limited to to just writing. And yeah. we give one example in the book um, where there was this really weird archaic security guideline that I was uh, being asked to follow where I was told to write an error message when someone's trying to sign up for a product for people who are um, 100 years of age or older. And we're just supposed to throw an error uh, because we weren't allowed to accept birth dates. 
for 100 years of age or older. And that was one where I, I just pushed back right away and was like, I mean, there are 53,000 people, according to the, the census 10 years ago, in our country alone, who are 100 years of age or older. <laughs> and no, no way that I write this will, um, will meet their needs. The, the way to do it is to change the policy to accommodate those people. Hmm. Mm, yeah, interesting. Uh, so the word policy here is very interesting, right? Because so much of content strategy is around governance and management of the words and the content and the language that a company can and can't use, right? So I think, I think uh, th- that comes into play quite a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's more the strategy that, like, you know, kind of like underlies the the UX writing that is being practiced a lot. And, and of course, staying away from job roles and titles, um, we try to operate like um, "quote unquote" full stack content strategists on my team. So we're we're thinking about sort of that base level of terminology and governance and the policy that kind of like underlies a lot of the Chrome and a lot of the stuff that happens in the experience. And of course, that's sometimes hard to do, especially at big siloed companies, because you know, policies are being decided upon and directed in a much, much different location by people who have no connection to the, the product experience. So, of course, easier said than done, but for sure, like, that's that's something that we're trying to make sure, because it's all words, right? Policies are words and, like, and thoughts and ideas, and, you know, that, that kind of matriculates out through um, the interface. So that's something important to affect kind of like the whole way through. Yeah, I've often, I mean, I've often thought of that that sort of uh, as as almost a, a business constraint with as much validity as a technical constraint. We can't do that because, right? Um, and uh, and you're absolutely right. There are times when those uh, the people that are making the the business constraints or the policies can very easily lose sight of the fact that they're affecting people uh, and maybe even marginalizing populations because of of this uh, in, a, in a way that doesn't manifest itself until literally you're looking at an interface and trying to figure out what words to use or what, in, in your case, what error to write. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, let me take a little break uh, and tell you a little bit about something from a, our friends at Pingdom from SolarWinds. Um, when you are listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website has gone down? Uh, would you know if your customers couldn't click the Buy Now button or access your content? You might stumble across the problem by luck, but that's no good. You definitely need a system to make sure your site is up. When you need something to tell you uh when everything is running smoothly on your site, and more importantly, when it's not, you need Pingdom. Uh, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month, and that's more than 400,000 outages every day. Uh, Pingdom keeps your sites and the sites you love online. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company, you need alerts about critical website issues, and they'll let you customize how those alerts are sent to you and who gets them uh, and what alerts you get depending on the severity of the outage. Uh, they'll track and analyze your website's load time because we all know how important the speed of a website is to, uh, and what effect it has on the user experience. Uh, so if you have a site of any size, go get uh, hooked up with Pingdom. Uh, and they have this no-fuss approach to getting started. All you need to do is take a URL that you want to monitor uh, and put it in when you sign up, and they will take care of the rest. Uh, you can go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now. You'll get a 14-day free trial. Use it all you want. Uh, you don't even have to put in your credit card. When you do sign up and you use the code PRESENTABLE, they'll knock 30% off your first invoice. So that's fantastic. So thanks to our friends at Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Uh, yeah, we got to keep the content online. 
That's good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> for uh, sure. Thank you, Pingdom. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, let's um, let's talk about uh, the role of writer in development teams and product teams. Uh, that is not. In my experience, one of the first roles that happens. So I think the discipline either gets uh, dramatically overlooked or is picked up by somebody, probably the, the the designer who has to sort of think all the fly what the word should be. Uh, have you seen that changing, or is that is that common to your experience as well? What's what's that like? It's changing in different levels. I think in the I see a lot more recognition of thinking of this as a distinct role that can bring a lot of value to a team in big tech companies, in software companies, in places like the Bay Area, um, New York, things like that. I think it's been a little bit harder in traditional companies for people to think of that as a, as a role. So um, usually it like falls, as you said, to a mix of people. Maybe sometimes it's the designer who has to put something in their design. Maybe sometimes it's the developer who is, has to write an error message. Um, so usually the the responsibilities fall to different people on the team. Yeah. And that's, I think, why you often will see such wildly different kinds of messaging, depending on like where in the product you are. Like, you know, maybe sometimes you'll get some error message that says like, this operation has failed to execute. And then, you know, it's on a screen where there's a button that says like, great exclamation mark. You're all set exclamation mark. And <laughs> the, the, the voice and like the tones that they're capturing are just so wildly different. Um, and yeah, like Michael said, um, for sure, we're, we're seeing, um, and sort of like Silicon Valley product companies, just a proliferation of people who are thinking about this. Uh, it's definitely a growing field. Um, and I think that's thanks in large part to companies like Facebook and companies like Airbnb who have just like really huge teams and have found sort of the value in um, adjusting or being intentional, I guess, in in kind of the way that they're talking to users. Mm -hmm. um, and for sure, that's been something that's kind of like rippled outward. Um, and, and that's not to say that there aren't people who think very hard about it in in other kind of non-tech product companies. Um, sometimes they're just, you know, the UX writing is something that that's not their primary job. There's a lot of product marketing people who do it. There's a lot of product managers who do it. Um, so it's 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 something we, in the book we really wanted to divorce the, you know, the role from the responsibilities there. Yeah. Um, make sure we're writing a book for everyone. But definitely there are plenty of people who whose job it specifically is to do this. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You mentioned uh, tone and voice and, and companies like Airbnb, Facebook, I think, make it really evident to people that effort has been put in. Uh, I remember my first experience many, many years ago with the onboarding of Slack and just how good that was and, and thinking like, this really sounds like not only a person, but a person who is really, really paying attention to the, to the language that you're using. Uh, and yeah. so, and so I think that has been, a little, I mean, it's a little bit like when all those years ago, the iPhone first came out and everyone was suddenly like, Oh my God, like uh, the attention to de <laughs> the attention to detail here is outrageous and everybody can see it. Uh, all of yeah. our, all of our, I could hear executives everywhere like, give me that iPhone experience. Right. Or I, <laughs> I remember yeah. 10 years before that sitting as a consultant in many rooms where people are like, I just want everything as simple as that Google page. You know, so, yeah. uh, so it feels like the tone and the voice that is being expressed in a lot of products these days is really taking inspiration from some of those, those early examples yeah. of, of people that really nailed it. And in fact, we, uh, we interviewed, um, the, the, the founder, the voice of Slack, the original voice, uh, 
Anna Picard. Um, she's she's now their head of uh, uh, brand communications. Uh, excuse me, brand and communications. But she's um, she just talks about like some of the decisions that went into Slack's voice and how she kind of like scaled that voice. Um, Cause it was, I mean, and it remains to be just super, super strong, even though they have such a large team now. And it's something that matriculates not, not just through the product experience, but into support experiences and into their documentation and into like, you know, brand and marketing um, communications um, it's, it's something that's really hard to maintain as companies grow. Um, I think for example, you know, you might, you might, if you use MailChimp and have used it for a while, you've, you've definitely seen their voice, um, soften a little bit and just become a little bit more subtle and gentle. Um, and yeah, I, I think as, as you scale and you have more people who are kind of touching and owning that voice, like it gets harder to really, you know, continue to, to make those very opinionated decisions. But, um, on a, and then also in our book, we, we try to give some, some good guidelines to actually doing that. She was a guest on this very podcast, but it was a couple of years really? ago. Yeah, it was a few years ago now, um, very early on. Uh, and I completely agree with you. The, the way that they have scaled that has been very impressive. It, it, is, it is probably a somewhat similar uh, experience that many people have with design systems, which is yeah, the difficulty sure. as, a, as an organization grows. And as you get design teams that are 200 or 300 people, even keeping all the designers on the same page can be a tremendous, tremendous uh, yeah. piece of work. And, and so having you know, what would traditionally be called a style guide uh, for your content, I think, I think there's probably a lot that goes into that. Yeah. You guys mentioned tone and voice. And you, you you spend quite a bit of time in the in the book talking about that. I thought that was really really interesting. The distinction between the voice that your company uses and the tone in individual instances, having a tone hierarchy and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, why don't you take us through the differences there and and some of the ways that you think about that? So I think people conflate voice and tone a lot. Like they kind of put them together, and it just is part of the same thing. But, sure. You know, and and I totally see how that happens. But so think about like you know I. I am a person, I am Andy Welfley, I have a particular set of values and experiences and uh, backgrounds and contexts and things that I know. And that's usually pretty consistent. Um, I am always Andy in whatever I do, and that's, that's kind of my voice. But I do, as you know, a human who is interacting in the world, um, just react to different situations differently. So like if you're, you know, the way that I'm talking to you on this podcast is different than the way that I might be talking to a friend who's upset or stressed out or to how I might talk to my little sister or to my parents or to my boss. Hmm. And the ways that I sort of like shift my context and the way that I speak and the things that I say and approach is, is my tone, right? So if, um, if software is really trying to be very conversational and just be human and really capturing, um, just really responding to a user, um, the software should be trying as hard as it can to like kind of adjust its tone based on that. So um, I, we have a series in the, of uh, questions in the book about how to um, kind of like walk through different scenarios, like, you know, a, a support experience where your credit card has expired and you might be really confused is we're talking to a user one way there. And, mm. you know, we might talk to a user another way when we're trying to get them onboarded, we might be very motivational and the difference in what you choose to say and the words that you choose to say it, and even sort of the, the brand expression too can all be different. We interviewed um, 
Alicia Dougherty Wold, who is is now a VP of design at Facebook, but was is kind of the director of content strategy, and then also Jasmine Probst, who is the Instagram content strategy director. Mm. I I learned about tone from from those folks, so I definitely wanted to make sure their voice and kind of their framework was was heard in this book because it's still from to me one of the most kind of advanced you know frameworks for thinking about this stuff out there. I was particularly struck by that tone hierarchy. This idea that you you can kind of categorize the different sort of language that you would need uh, in different contexts. So you might use very, very different language on a landing page that's trying to entice people uh, versus an error message or a bit of descriptive text uh, that, yeah. might, that might need to fit in a button. I was going to say one thing I, w- I wanted to give you a quick distinction on is it's, it's we're really trying to get away from a hierarchy. Um, there's like, like tone is not this like volume knob that you turn up and down, but instead think of it more of a spectrum, like, you know, mm. kind of a, kind of a flat um, spectrum on which, on which you're picking your tone. And that's just a, that's just a good way to sort of visualize it in your mind. But I'm so, com- I'm so comfortable with hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, but that, but that in each one of these contexts, let's call them, you you would have a set of guidelines for how to interpret the voice, and I thought that was really clever, really really interesting. Yeah, and your mileage may vary. Like like many people's um, you know product experiences could be could be different. Like I I know at Adobe, like you know we're it's professional creative software, so right. we're trying to kind of stick in the realm of like, you know, inspirational to support experiences. Where, you know, something like, um, you know, Michael Michael works at a um, like an insurance company. Like, often he has is facing customers who are in periods of distress, right? Like, the ways the ways the nuances in which you need to talk to them have to really take that into account. And and sometimes um, sometimes the best tone is no tone. Like, you're just trying to have a very neutral. Uh, informative experience, um, just getting some information in front of people. So I think, you know, that like even, even just, just as bald as a hair color, um, I think that no tone is a, is a tone choice as well. Interesting. Yeah. There's, there's times when you definitely don't want the little green lizard talking to you when you're (laughs) standing next to the wreckage of your car, I would imagine. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I encourage people in, when they're trying to make a decision about when to do that, to really make sure that you're designing for the stress cases. That's a term um, from Sarah Wachtebecher and Eric Meyer's book, Design for Real Life, yeah. where you're trying to figure out what are the what are the absolute worst scenarios someone could be in as they experience this. Let's make sure we're accommodating those things first. Let's make sure that we're accounting for what could go wrong in this interface rather than mm. focusing on when things go right all the time. You know, we were just talking about that in the last episode of this podcast when we had uh, Kenneth Bowles on, uh, talking about sort of ethical design and taking the time to stop and think uh, as we're as we're in the design, the, the even earlier ideation stages of design about what could go wrong, what are the implications of, uh, and what are the you know externalities and things like that. And I think what you're talking about there is is uh, a perfect point. A uh, perfect example of that point, which is that we uh, so often think think of small groups of users as edge cases or unlikely events as edge cases and not, uh, I love that term, stress cases. The idea of it's a very small group of people in a context in which they're having, you know, an extreme emotional, uh, emotional reaction. How do we talk to them? Yeah. I, tr- I try as often as I can when I hear the term edge case to just kind of like 
gently correct that distress case because is it i think i think in that same book that michael was talking about they talk about um you know edge edge case implies that there's a limit to the number of people you care about right and i i think that you know that's that's an approach that we that we just don't want to take for sure yeah 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 and honestly it's not as hard as people think to get there and it, you're not yeah. sacrificing a lot it, you know sometimes the, maybe someone will think that there should be a really cute phrase there that they're sort of uh excited about but the experience as a whole usually is not going to suffer if you if you try to optimize for those stress cases so i think it's really good grounding for everyone to sort of realize you know what we these people like people in this situation really do matter let's focus on them and their needs yeah Let's talk just a little bit about uh, sort of collaboration and process uh, in, in how this works. We've, we've talked a little bit, obviously, the, the more focused early on on the language uh, that we can, uh, perhaps the better uh, the interface will eventually be. Um, but, you know, a writer that's entering a, a development team, a product team, uh, how can they shape the process to make sure that the language is the best they possibly can be? So we, we have a chapter about this. Uh, chapter 8 is really all about how to get going with your team. And it's something we really wanted to talk about because we feel like there are some unique challenges writers face in particular when they're joining a team. One of the things we heard when interviewing people for the book, we interviewed close to 20 people. And one of the things we heard was that writers across the board almost feel like they're left out of the process where um, design and development and strategy work is happening. And people only come to the writer when um, there are some, like when everything's sort of been decided and it's no longer malleable and there's no way to get involved. So there are some ways to do that. I mean, some of the practical things we say are like, try to learn different ways to invite yourself to stuff <laughs> um, and, and show your value to the team in those scenarios. That's a really practical hands-on thing. Another thing I would say is like, being sensitive to the needs of the team and how you can help them with short-term wins, which really builds you credibility and influence over time. Sometimes I think, I, I would say this for designers as well, sometimes people can join a team and kind of feel like, okay, I'm here with my title and my fancy salary, and you, you all need to listen to me now. <laughs> um, you know, do what I say, and, and please line up here for my suggestions. And really, it's so important to to spend a lot of time listening to your team when you join, because the the work usually was happening without you before you got there. So if you can figure out what the what the team is dealing with, what the hardest things about their job are, what they really need right now, what pressures they're facing, what they're being measured on, and you can help with those things, then you can start to really build influence and and um, make a big impact over time. But I think sometimes writers sort of feel. Like, okay, I'm in there. Uh, why isn't anyone listening to me? Uh, why yeah. isn't anyone, um, you know, paying attention? Yeah. Yeah, I think I could have probably named this podcast A Seat at the Table. It comes up so often for <laughs> sort of every aspect of, 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 of the design experience. Uh, but, yeah, no, that's good. Asking questions. Um, uh, trying to be as collaborative as possible, uh, I think, uh, another point that you guys make. Good. Yeah, Andy, how about uh, on your end? Any any guides to entering a new team or improving a team? So when I started at Adobe, I was the first kind of like UX writing focused um, person that the Adobe design team has ever really had. Um, and I, I I think the expectation was first, you know, just kind of like understand 
kind of the idiosyncrasies of how Adobe does it and figure out how to sort of like build a team and build the influence out of that. So I, I spent my first year just, you know, embedding on a team that had a really just like specific um, task and also was kind of like open to experimenting. Um, because the way that I sort of like influence a huge old company like Adobe with all of its kind of baggage and idiosyncrasies is going to be way different than the way that I would inf- like influence a startup, right? Yeah. So I, I I spent most of my time just learning like, hey, this is, I'm a, I'm a round peg. This is a square hole. How do I figure out how to sort of like adapt and fit myself and some future team into this process? Um, and I, I think the first, the first aspect of it is like establishing that, like finding the right opportunity of somebody who's willing to just like try some stuff out with you. And then, and then after that, you know, kind of turn it into, into the roadshow, into the, like, you know, evangelizing the practice and point to some of the quick wins and some of the big, more systemic wins that you had, hmm. uh, fitting, fit, fitting into that and just showing them what a future with, you know, a future with your own embedded content strategies could possibly be like, um, so it's it's definitely a super hard thing to do, and it's going to be so much different at every company. But that's that's kind of how been my my experience with doing that has been so far. Yeah, no, this is good career advice for anybody, frankly. You know, um, yeah. I, I think that's great. I think that's a that's a, a great way to sort of endear yourself to to a team to become part of the team. Uh, fantastic. Uh, all right, so the book is called "Writing Is Designing Words and the User Experience" from Rosenfeld Media. I will put a link to that in the show notes where you can get it from the website. Michael, let me start with you. Where else can we find out more about what you're up to? First of all, everything book-related you can find at writingisdesigning.com. And Andy and I are sending out a regular newsletter that you could sign up for mm, at that website great. as well. I'm also trying to write a bit more on my personal site. Uh, the, the writing of the book kind of got me started um, doing more of that. So you can find that at mjmets.com. And of course, feel free to follow me on Twitter uh, at mjmets. Fantastic. How about you, Andy? Like Michael said, uh, anything book related at writingisdesigning.com. Um, but I have some other interesting side projects. Um, I have a podcast and a, a zine about pencils and stationery and analog things. Uh, just kind of a oh, cool. Uh, honestly, a side passion of both of ours. Um, and in fact, if you look at our book cover, it's uh, it's a deconstructed pencil. So we're super geeky and geeky and ner- nerding out about that. But um, yeah, so um, you can get to that at um, any, any of that kind of stuff at andy.wtf, which is my uh, website for that. <laughs> Great. And I've set, squatted on that domain name for, <laughs> or grabbed that as, as fast as I could. <laughs> um, and then I'm on Instagram and Twitter at, at a Wellfley, first initial, last name. All right, last question then. Uh, mechanical pencils? Yes? No? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I... I recognize that what mechanical pencils are really great for a lot of people like architects and engineers. Um, I myself, and I, I think I don't want to speak for you, Michael, but we both really love sort of the tactile feel and sort of the slowdown that wooden pencils give you. So I, I generally prefer, prefer a nice wooden pencil. Fantastic. I am going to go subscribe to your podcast right now. That sounds just so nerdy <laughs> and awesome. I love that kind of stuff. That's great. Uh, guys, yeah. um, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I just really appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having us on. Thank you. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.